This is What's Growing On, a show where we dig up the latest dirt on Ontario horticulture production, helping producers navigate best management practices and taste the sweet success of a quality crop. My name is Christy Greg McGuffin. And I'm Cassie Russell. Join us while we talk with specialists in the field of fruit, vegetables, and specialty crops to find out what's really growing on. On today's episode, we'll be talking with vegetable specialist Travis Cranmer on garlic scaping, followed by a segment on fire blight of apples and pears with pathologist Katie Goldenhar. But first, let's cover some general crop updates for Ontario. Christy, what's growing on with fruit? <laughs> Thanks, Kazi. So strawberries are moving quickly now with the warmer temperatures. Raspberries will likely begin bloom next week, while blueberries are at full bloom. Botrytis and anthracnose fungicides will be applied over the bloom period if conditions are optimal for infection. Tarnished plant bug, aphids, clipper weevil, and mites are now active in many fields, as well gypsy moth larvae has been found in strawberries and blueberries. For tree fruit and grape, development has been behind normal due to the cooler May temperatures, but this warmer weather we've had recently has really pushed growth forward. Conditions have been optimal for fungal diseases in grapes, and we're also starting to see the first adult mealybugs. Development for grapes is about 10 to 12 inches of shoot growth. The early apple-growing regions of the province are at petal fall to fruit set, while later regions are not far behind, seeing late bloom to early petal fall. There's still no signs of apple scab or fire blight yet, despite the recent infection events, but powdery mildew has got a hold of susceptible varieties in some orchards. Insect activity, including spring-feeding caterpillars, mullen bug, aphids, and leaf-curling midge has really picked up this week. Stone fruit are at shuck stage, and pears are nearing calyx. Pear scab is showing up in some blocks, and controls for aphids, curculio, oriental fruit moth, and scylla are being applied. The frost damage from May freeze is becoming more apparent in orchards, but the full extent of frost damage will really not be known until later this summer as the fruit continues to mature. Over to you, Cassie, for a veg update. All right, thanks, Christy. Let's start with some vegetables here. So if brassica crops, transplants are establishing well and putting up new leaves. If transplants have leaves cut off in the field, make sure you're looking for cutworm larvae in the soil. Wilted plants may be due to millipede or seed corn maggot damage, and if the leaves are purple, the wilt may be due to wire stem. Adult click beetles and flea beetles are active already, and the first generation threshold for cabbage maggot emergence has already been reached in Essex County. With carrots, the bulk of carrot acres have been seeded, and many growers are irrigating to get good germination through these dry conditions that are being seen in some areas. With the stretch of hot weather, we saw a lot of heat canker and dying off um, from hot soil conditions despite frequent irrigation in some cases. It's also important to note that carrot weevil is already active and laying eggs. With celery, aster leafhopper, and tarnished plant bugs are active, and thresholds have been reached in all regions except for Sudbury. Garlic plants are starting to send out the scape leaf, and the scapes of music should start to emerge in most regions over the next 5 to 10 days. Irrigation may be required for bulbs to size well in areas that have had little precipitation over the past month. With onions, the degree day threshold for onion maggot has been reached in most growing areas. 
Control volunteer onions in neighboring fields as these can be sources for fungi inoculum or pests like onion thrips. Almost all potato acres have been planted in Ontario. Most of the early seeded acres weathered the frost surprisingly well and enjoyed that nice, nice stretch of hot weather we had. At plant, insecticides should be taken care of overwintering Colorado potato beetle adults, but make sure you monitor your fields and keep an eye on any Colorado potato beetle populations that appear, as they seem to be multiplying earlier than expected. Warm temperatures have led to rapid spear emergence in asparagus crops. Last week's fluctuating temperatures have, encur have encouraged stemphilium purple spot in many areas. Fusarium and Phytophthora symptoms have also been observed in some areas, and early symptoms have been difficult to differentiate from the extensive frost damage that was seen. Large amounts of cucumbers have been planted, and, pumpkins and pumpkin production is planned to proceed as normal in southwestern Ontario. Transplanted cucurbits have already been host to a large emergence of striped cucumber beetle. Tomato and pepper planting is also still underway through areas of southwestern Ontario, and scouting for weeds and early season pests should be started immediately. For more detailed information on these and other fruit and vegetable crops, check out our weekly crop updates at onvegetables.com and onfruit.ca. vegetable segment, I'm here with Travis Cranmer, OMAFRA vegetable specialist covering alliums, brassicas, and leafy vegetables. Welcome, Travis. Thanks, Cassie. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you here. So I'm really curious, what kinds of questions are you getting around garlic this time of year? Oh, well, this time of year, I tend to get a lot of questions regarding the benefits of removing the garlic scape. Um, the garlic scape is that flowering stem that you see around the first week of June, and technically it's not a flower, but it uses the plant's energy the same way that a flower would. Okay, and sorry, why is it not technically a flower? Well, the garlic that we grow in Ontario is technically sterile, uh, meaning that the flowers it produces do not have true seeds. So, yes, garlic scapes have bulbils, and, and those bulbils um, look like seeds, but they actually have the same genetic information or genetic material as the mother plant. So the wild ancestors of today's garlic originated thousands of years ago in Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan, um, and garlic spread around the globe as it became a popular vegetable, spice, and uh, medicinal plant. So the varieties or cultivars that we have today were selected for their favorable traits and I, I would think that the favorable traits, whether it was the spiciness of the clove or uh, tolerance to drought or the average size of the bulb or number of cloves in the bulb, uh, they were likely all mutations that occurred and, and then that particular plant was grown and, and divided and, and reproduced clonally or asexually. Uh, by the separation of the cloves for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So these scapes are a flowering stem that doesn't have any true flowers. And, and these um, ball bills that form actually 
take energy away from the plant and and we want to be putting energy into that bulb instead of the the ball bill so uh, as a result uh people in the past have removed the garlic scape to increase the yield of that garlic bulb um and and in doing so uh flower production over time uh wasn't needed by the crop and the cultivars that were continually grown kind of lost that ability and now most of the garlic clones and cultivars that we have today are are sterile. Okay. Um, are there non-sterile or fertile cultivars of garlic that are grown? Well, I yeah, I believe there uh, were some researchers in the 1980s and 90s that found some plants uh, that were fertile, and and a lot of work was done to cross the flowers. So true seed garlic um, could be can be produced by crossing these varieties and um, I believe research is being conducted right now to develop new breeding lines uh, taking this stock from uh, Kazakhstan. Um, so sorry just going back to what you said earlier you want to remove the scape so that the plant puts energy into the bulb and not the bulb bill that's in that scape is that correct? Right so in Ontario, um, cultivars generally shoot up escape sometime in the first, second, uh, and sometimes as late as uh, the third week of June, depending on the cultivar. Uh, the yield increase that you could expect differs depending on what cultivar you're growing. Uh, some research uh, done, I think, in the late 90s, early 2000s by John Zanstra at the University of Guelph Ridgetown campus uh, showed the timing of the scape removal directly influenced the resulting yield of the crop and the average size of the bulb. So his results showed that it is advantageous to remove the scapes as soon as possible and reduce any negative impact on yield if you were to leave the scape on. So he found a yield increase of 20 to 30 percent when the scape was removed by hand. And this work was done by the cultivar music, uh, with the cultivar music. So um, 90% of the garlic grown in Ontario, or I would say the predominant hardneck cultivar that's grown in Ontario is the cultivar music. Okay. And music's a hardneck cultivar? What does that mean? That's right. Yeah. So um, hardneck cultivars are the ones that produce escape or that uh, sterile flower stock. So there are uh, hardneck bolting cultivars and softneck non-bolting cultivars. Uh, there are also some cultivars that partially bolt, but it really depends on uh, when they were planted or how stressed they are and and a bunch of other factors. So most of the garlic we grow in Ontario is that hardneck varieties. And uh, there are some softneck varieties that are grown and growers are trialing them to see how well they grow in our conditions and try to provide uh, more diversity to the consumer. But Generally speaking, soft neck cultivars do better in hotter, drier climates, and hard necks perform well in more temperate regions. So, uh, depending on what garlic taxonomist you talk to, uh, there are eight cultivar groups that fit under strong bolting, weak bolting, or non bolting. Okay. Um, so, with garlic scaping, you pull or snap the scape off to increase the yield in these hard neck cultivars. But what do you do if you have a lot of acres to scape? So you're you're asking if it it's going to take a while to scape a full acre? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I yeah I promote uh, snapping of the scape. So if you pull the stem, um, it, it 
could break below the highest leaf and without anything to support that top leaf it may flop over. So depending on your acreage it takes 10 to 14 hours for one person to escape an acre of garlic depending on how dense you are planting. Okay. Uh, there is a movement for scapes to be sold in grocery stores and uh, you know they're great to be put into omelets or pesto, stir fries or uh, steamed like vegetables, asparagus um, or, or even grilled uh, and and if you were to scape a whole acre uh, I would say you typically get around uh, or over 300 pounds of scapes per acre. Wow. Yeah, it's funny because um, my friend actually, she grows garlic and she every year gives me pickled garlic scapes and they're so good and not a lot of people have heard of them. Right, yeah. Um, so if you weren't worried about selling the scapes, but you still wanted that yield and benefit increase, uh, could you just use something like a mower to cut off the scapes? Yes, uh, you could, but I would avoid doing so. It takes a while for the scapes to be totally above the crop canopy and the longer the scape is there, the more energy, theoretically, that plant is putting into the scape instead of the bulb. John Zanstra also did some research, uh, also with the Cultivar Music, looking at um, how sickle bar mowers might uh, be a good way of removing the scape and uh, what the yield benefits were. So you could imagine that a sickle bar mower uh, would greatly reduce the amount of labor that is required to remove that scape. So you've got that that uh, sickle bar going horizontally across the crop, and theoretically you're just hitting the scapes and you're not hitting the plant. Right. But the field isn't totally level, and sometimes there are some scapes below that you want to below the crop canopy, and and sometimes there are are plants that have high leaves, and um, so you would find that a lot of leaves are cut in the scape removal process if you're using a sickle bar mower. And just by removing one leaf, bulb sizes were reduced by 13% and the yield was reduced by an average of 17.5%. So wow. yield was greatly impacted as the number of leaves uh, cut increased during mowing. And if you cut the top two leaves, the yield was reduced by 25 and if you nick the third and fourth you might expect to lose 46 or even over 50 percent yield reduction so garlic tends to only shoot up so many leaves per season and compared to weeds it is a weak competitor so those thin leaves that do not have much surface area um, are there they're taking sun they're photosynthesizing and and you only have 10 or 12 leaves and if if you cut two or three of them uh, of those top leaves that's some serious surface area that you're losing in music the scapes get well above the crop canopy so uh, theoretically uh, if the scapes were high enough above the leaves and the ground was level there's a good chance that you could cut it without cutting too many leaves but there is also another disadvantage to using a mower what and what's that well the spreading of viruses and other pathogens. So let's say that at the start of the row, the mower knives come into contact with a plant that has a virus, bacteria, or fungi. Um, that pathogen stays on the knife, and when it cuts the second or third or fourth plant, it spreads pathogen to the fresh cut of those secutive plants. 
Um, I worked in a research greenhouse a few years ago, and if I cut one plant with scissors that was infected with a virus, and then I purposely cut a few plants after, all of those healthy plants showed viral symptoms a week later. It's not like we were cleaning the knives of that sickle bar more between each cut. Like we are going through that field and we are cutting the whole field or acres of that field and cutting a lot of plants. And in doing so, we're spreading a lot of pathogens to other plants. So I, I just, I want you to keep in mind that without flowers or true seeds, garlic is a vegetatively grown crop, just like potatoes or strawberries. It, it produ- reproduces asexually, uh, by those, by cloves, uh, which you could consider to be clones of that, um, mother plant. So the mother bulb has identical genetics as the daughter clove. And the same is true with the bulbil that is produced in the scape. Um, if, if we're talking about, uh, general seed physiology, um, seeds have an abscission layer. And, uh, without getting into too much detail, this layer can prevent the seeds from getting infected with the virus from the mother plant. In garlic, there is no true seed being produced. So there's no abscission layer, no protection against viruses. And, and we are propagating the plant using a piece of the bulb, not cloves. So, if the mother plant has viruses, bacteria, or fungi, the cloves are going to have those viruses, bacteria, or fungi. And in the fall, when we use some of those cloves to plant the new crop, we are also planting next year's problem with the crop as well. And I think that using a sickle bar mower and, and spreading those pathogens around turns a few problem bulbs into a lot of problem bulbs. And, and it's not like there's a virus side or bacteria side that can be applied at that point to fix the crop. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, but how is scaping by hand any better? Well, remember how I mentioned that you were scaping by hand by snapping? Well, hopefully when you are snapping by hand, your hand is not coming into contact with the vascular tissue of the plant. And the snap is... Uh, below your hand. So if the breaking point never comes into contact with your hand, you are greatly reducing the risk of pathogens or viruses from spreading, right? Okay, but if garlic is vegetatively propagated, wouldn't that mean that viruses just build up naturally over time? Right, yes. So virus infection is generally transmitted by insects like aphids, thrips, or leafhoppers. And these insects have a stylet that pierces the plant cells um, and if the virus is present, the virus can enter the insect's foregut and into the salivary uh, glands and, and the insect moves to a new plant and pierces it. Some virus infected saliva may be left behind from the previously visited plant. So virus symptoms don't always show up at first, but they can accumulate uh, over time, over years of production. And while they're not causing any visible symptoms and, uh, you know, they, they cannot be cured with a pesticide application, um, they, they still slow the plant down in other ways. Uh, and it's been described as a yield drag and it could make the plant more susceptible to other stressors. So, um, as an example, some crops like potatoes have a certified seed program and it's, uh, federally regulated and has set limits on how much disease and, viruses can be tolerated. There are also classes of uh, seeds based on the age uh, of the of the clone or the plant or the level of disease or viruses that's, that's in that uh, 
planting stock. Other crops like garlic, they do not have the same regulations and, and programs, so seed is often reused indefinitely. So is there a certified seed program for garlic? Yeah, so the Garlic Growers Association of Ontario and the SPUD Unit uh, Research Facility in New Liskard, uh, they're working together to create a program where members can order clean planting stock. And so past research uh, in the early 2000s showed that virus-free bulbs, uh, so ones that had been through the tissue culture program, showed a yield boost of 25 to 50% uh, compared to bulbs that were not put through the program. So there's a huge potential there for greater yields and uh, and also as a side like as an added bonus, uh, there would be uh, reduced crop loss over time if there are fewer problems with viruses, fungi, and bacteria building up from generation to generation. Right. So it seems kind of like a no-brainer here to use certified seed. Right. And it, it wouldn't really be certified in the sense uh, because we don't have a certification program. It would be a uh, virus-free planting stock. So what 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 happens is uh, the spud unit would um, ask for garlic tissue and uh, they would grow. Let's say that they take the scape from the the field in June and they they put that in the lab and they they're they're basically growing it out and they want to remove the viruses or plant pathogens that are there. So how do you do that? Um, and and long story short is that they take the scape, they subject it to uh, a heating period and a cooling period and during that heating period that the meristem the very tip of that garlic scape grows faster um, then the virus can infect the new cells so their goal is to uh, get it to grow quickly during those warm periods and then snip the very tip of that scape that is not yet infected with virus uh, and place that on media, under lights, and in ideal growing conditions, they can grow that scape uh, into a mass of cells. And that mass of cells, they, they refer to, I think, as a callus. And then if they apply the right um, hormones, they uh, can get shoots and roots to develop. And um, this plant tissue could then be tested for viruses and if it's clean these plants are can be then divided up and multiplied and used to create uh, new bulbs uh, and they call them roundels so kind of like a play on words with ball bells they're roundels and 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 these roundels could be used for field production so the spud unit has developed a protocol or um, they refer to it as a recipe uh, that is specific to garlic grown in Ontario so um, to, to put this into perspective, garlics would uh, garlic growers could put in an order for uh, virus-free roundels, and several months later, uh, those roundels would be delivered to them. And uh, these roundels could be planted kind of in a in a plug tray, maybe like you would uh, plant transplant onions, and they would uh, grow these out. Once they get a little bit larger, they could put them into the field. And after uh, two years or so, you would get a marketable size bulb. Um, it, it wouldn't be after to you you grow the plant out to get a bulb that is um, this you know in its second or third year that you would expect to see that twenty five to fifty percent yield increase uh, that I was talking about earlier. So 
by planning a bit of a virus-free stock every year, you would eventually transition uh, your whole crop over to that new stock from New Liskard, and your pathogen load over time would decrease, your yields would increase, and I bet the quality and the length that you're able to store the bulbs uh, in storage would improve as well. So yeah, I, uh, that that's a lot to process. Um, but <laughs> a, a lot of problems caused by pathogens can be managed or eliminated with proper production strategies, uh, just like the way you skate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what would you give as a quick summary for just garlic scaping in general? Uh, well, yeah, as a quick summary, if, if you're growing hardneck varieties, uh, scape them as soon as those scapes emerge. Try not to damage the leaves in the process and uh, limit the amount of pathogens you're spreading between plants. Yeah, that's great advice. Oh, thanks again, Travis, uh, for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate all your expertise on garlic. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Anytime. Thanks. Thanks, Travis. On today's fruit segment, while bloom in an apple or pear orchard can be simply breathtaking, these blossoms offer great real estate for the devastating bacterial infection Erwinia amliovora, also known as fire blight. As a pest management specialist for apples, I get numerous questions each year about how to deal with this difficult disease, so that's why I'm quite excited with this year's bloom now passed in most orchards to be joined by Ontario's pathologist for horticulture crops, Katie Goldenhart to find out if we're really out of the woods for fire blight infection. Katie, welcome and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Christy. Let's start first with an overview of fire blight. So what exactly is this? Yeah, so fire blight is caused by the bacteria Erwinia amylovora, which is a rather ubiquitous pathogen that is commonly found in and around orchards and growing on many surfaces. In fact, we've known that this has been the bacteria that's caused fire blight for hundreds of years now. However, still, when conditions are right, it can be an extremely devastating disease to apple and pear crops, potentially causing death of trees. The bacteria favors warm and wet conditions and can be transmitted via insects, rain, wind, or contaminated equipment, or both. Many parts of the tree can be infected, and then the symptoms are often referred to by the part of the tree that's impacted. So blossom blight refers to the blight of the blossoms, shoot blight, fruit blight, limb and trunk, also known as canker blight, and rootstock blight. Bloom time, though, tends to be when the trees are the most susceptible for infection. Why is bloom the highest risk? So flowers provide a natural opening in the host for the bacteria to invade those host cells. The bacteria spreads easily by insects like pollinators or flies, by rain or wind when the blooms are open, and then they survive well on the floral tissue. So with any free moisture, that bacteria can move into the flower cup and into these natural openings directly into the tissue. This makes bloom the most dangerous time for the fire blight infection. And that's especially true when there are favorable conditions like we've had when it's hot and humid during bloom, as temperatures over 18 degrees Celsius and high humidity over 90% promote rapid bacterial growth. So with these warm days, you're saying the blooms can act almost like incubators for the bacteria, causing these bursts in population? Yeah, yeah. 
But does that actually ensure infection? Like why should growers be concerned about it if there's no rain forecast in their area? Right. So in these conditions, the fire blight bacteria can colonize and spread throughout the orchard really easily through rain, wind, or transferred insects. It takes very little free water to wash bacteria into the bloom, especially if the population is very high. So not only can we have the weatherman being wrong and have unexpected rain events occur, but heavy dew that's very common this time of year, overhead irrigation, or water from a sprayer can lead to an infection. That's why it's very important to follow forecasting models like Mary Blight, Cougar Blight, or refer to our Ontario prediction maps to determine when risk is high and preventative material is needed. So you're saying there's a number of conditions then that need to be met for an infection to actually occur. Like the pathogen needs to be present, uh, an opening such as a bloom needs to be present on the tree, and conditions need to be warm with some kind of wedding event? Right. So you need the disease triangle. Thank you, Kristen. (laughs) So most varieties and regions, um, they're now past bloom in the province. But um, I found it's not really too uncommon to see late bloom in some of the blocks. But do we still have to be concerned about infection risk? Yeah. So a really common cause of fire blight escapes in an orchard are often when growers are stopping their bloom management programs too early and missing secondary or rat-tailed bloom. So these blossoms that can occur after the main bloom period is over um, are often easily overlooked as it's just clusters here and there throughout a block. So something like Gala, where it's a variety that's really prone to these secondary or rat tail blooms, is often also quite susceptible to fire blight. So it's really important to continue to monitor orchard blocks um, for infection and for these secondary blooms. You might even want to strategically hold onto one final spray application just in case there's a late bloom, so long as it fits within those pre-harvest restrictions. However, if time and labor are available, it might be best to go through those orchards and remove those blossoms, since the fruits that is produced by late blossoms are more of a risk than they are an asset. So the other concern that there is with this late or delayed bloom in new plantings Um, is it often falls within these more ideal weather conditions. So as I mentioned earlier, there is rapid rapid growth of this bacteria on those warm and humid conditions. Um, And so when we have that later bloom, there can be more ideal weather conditions. Also, in general, when we talk about young orchards, um, there's a higher risk of fire blight infection. And that is because that infection that's from the shoot or from the blossom can more quickly move to the main leader um, with the vigorous growth and under ideal conditions. And so that can occur within one or a couple months. And so when we have these late blooms, if labor is available, try to remove any blossoms on these new trees. Otherwise, consider something like copper registered for summer use to protect those blossoms. So with both rat tail bloom and new plantings, usually I encourage growers to to try and remove fruit buds before they even open just as a way to kind of prevent any of that bacterial growth from even starting. Um, but if they miss that window, then I typically tell them to aim for, you know, at least a dry day just to try and reduce the risk of infection. So would you agree with that approach? Yeah, I think it's very important to keep on top of this disease and to manage it in those uh, young orchards. Okay, so say we get through all of that and blossom blight was avoided in the orchard, what are the chances of shoot blight developing? 
Right. So we know that blossom blight can lead to shoot infection via direct movement into the spurs. However, while avoiding blossom blight is important to the overall fight against this bacteria, succulent green tissue can still be invaded separately by the bacteria causing this shoot blight. So the risk is lowered when there's less inoculum from those blossom infections. However, cankers that form ooze droplets can still transmit the bacteria to new shoots even after bloom. It is also possible for those bacterial cells to be blown in or carried in from another orchard at any time during the season. So injury to the shoots leaves them more susceptible to infection with less bacteria needed to infect a wound versus a natural opening in the shoot. Okay, wait, what's ooze? (laughs) Right, yes, ooze. So ooze is a mass of exopolysaccharides and bacterial cells, which is just a fancy way of saying that it's a droplet that comes out of infected host tissue that has a lot of bacterial cells. And those bacterial cells are capable of causing infection. So in one ooze droplet, there's an average of 1 to 100 billion bacterial cells um, that that are present in that ooze droplet. Which is crazy when we know how few bacterial cells are needed in one blossom. Um, in order to then rapidly divide under these ideal conditions and cause infection. So ooze is really important for this bacteria to be able to spread throughout an orchard. It's not necessarily always formed on infected tissue, um, and it seems to be correlated when there is those favorable conditions. Ooze can also dry out on a tree. However, once there is water again, that ooze droplet is then capable of transmitting bacteria cells again. An interesting fact, it was found that a dried droplet could survive and be viable for 25 months afterwards. So even if it's not ideal infection temperatures, once this ooze is initially formed, it can still dry out and be important for uh, infection later on. That's crazy. And and 100 billion cells. So like if you think about a fly visiting one ooze droplet and then how many times it lands on surfaces in the orchard after that, then you're saying basically a single ooze droplet could potentially spread bacteria through the entire orchard. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's why they're so important. So just to kind of backtrack a a second here, you mentioned that there's um, a need for a wound for infection to occur on the shoot tip. So what kind of injury is this typically? Yeah, so most bacterial pathogens need an opening in the host in order to infect, and this one is no different. So this could be a natural opening like blossoms, as we talked about through blossom infection, Um, but this can also be through a wound on a shoot tip. So there's a number of things that can cause injury. So microscopic wounds can be there through heavy rain, windstorms, especially when you have light soils such as sand or near a gravel laneway or the road. But even when these shoots are dividing very quickly and there's vigorous growth in those young trees, there can be microscopic tears in that developing tissue, which are able to let the pathogen infect. So larger wounds can also do this uh, by insects or by deer feeding, mechanical damage through pruning or hedging, or storm events like hail can also lead to this. Uh, However, we refer to this larger wounding as a trauma blight. So prevention is important to manage the risk of trauma blight and to keep that orchard clean from other infections so that if there is a trauma event, uh, there won't be high populations that are needed for that pathogen to spread and cause disease. 
But if a trauma event does happen, try to get a protective spray such as streptomycin or copper on within the first 12 hours after that event. So at this point, the bacteria haven't been introduced but haven't really started to grow. Um, and so if you wait until there is an established infection, those products won't be effective as the populations will be too high to provide that sufficient control. Okay, so now fire blight has struck in the orchard. So why is it recommended to cut the shoot back so much from the, that point of the visible symptoms? Right. So good question. Yeah. So once the bacteria enters the shoot and enters into the plant host cells, it can travel up to 2.5 centimeters per day in that tissue. And so it's moving so fast that it's possible not to see the symptoms yet where the bacteria actually is. And so those symptoms might not show up until one or two days later, or even later if those conditions have stopped being ideal for movement. So therefore, it's really important when pruning to go at least 30 centimeters below the transition zone where you see the healthy to symptomatic brown tissue or canker, or to at least that second year wood in order to control the spread of fire blight and protect the leader. So when you're using these pruning cuts to help um, manage fire blight, make sure that tools are sanitized between cuts by dipping or spraying them with bleach or an alcohol solution. Just in case one of those cuts has um, come in contact with any of these cells, then you're not transferring that to uninfected or healthy tissue. And just, just to add to that too, I also, I also think choosing days that are dry and sunny for pruning are important to prevent further spread. I think with kind of a nice stretch of several days that are dry, there's kind of this nice opportunity to leave the pruning cuts in the row middles to dry out before mulching them up. I think, you know, now we're moving towards more high density plantings in the province, then moving those pruning cuts out of the orchard before they've dried up, I think can cause more problems with spread than anything else. But um, so now in those dry conditions, when growers are going out to the orchard to think about pruning out their fire blight, should they focus on the more vigorous block since that fire blight is moving so quickly towards the leader? Yeah, so trying to focus on trees where infections have a high likelihood of reaching the main leader or on varieties that are more susceptible to fire blight. In a variety like Honeycrisp, which is not as susceptible to fire blight as something like Gala, the bacteria does not spread as quickly. Consider the vigor and number of strikes in a tree before deciding to prune during the season. It's possible that extensive pruning can stimulate trees to produce more succulent shoots, making them more susceptible again to this bacteria. With low vigor trees, the bacteria doesn't move into major limbs or trunks during the growing season as easily, so it can be left for after terminal bud set or dormant pruning. Highly vigorous trees with only a few strikes should be pruned as soon as possible. Same goes for young trees since the bacteria can move to the trunk so very quickly. So I've always liked to comment from uh, David Rosenberger. He's a retired pathologist with Cornell uh, about following a fire blight triage when it comes to, to doing the in-season pruning decisions. So he always said the highest priority is the young orchards less than eight years old that have only a few strikes, um, then followed up by those orchards with severe strikes. Um, but after those young orchards have been taken care of, then you can shift your focus over to kind of those older orchards 
with a few strikes, but he also has this group that he calls the walkaway group, the lowest priority, where these orchards have so many strikes that pruning them out in season would basically just just be stimulating growth. So he said, you know, like you like you just said, basically leave it until terminal bud set or or leave it for that dormant pruning. But um, okay, so one one last question for you. So it sounds like a big part of fire blight control is preventing the bacteria from actually reaching the main leader. So what happens if that bacteria does actually get to the leader? Is there anything that a grower can do? Yeah, so that's the unfortunate part. When it does reach that main leader, there is really not much a grower has left to do other than to remove that tree from the orchard. So eventually, once it reaches that main leader, it will quickly spread to the rootstock and can kill that tree. And if it is left in that orchard, there's the potential for a canker in the development of that ooze, which we talked about. Um, And this can increase the risk of infection for other healthy trees in season or for following seasons. Mm. So get it out, unfortunately. Better lose one tree than a bunch of them, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, so Katie, thank you so much for joining me today um, and for, for sharing some of your advice on managing fire blight in apple orchards. Yeah, thank you for having me. I was just speaking with Katie Goldenhar, pathologist for horticulture crops with Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. Well, that brings us to the end of our first episode. Thanks, Gazzy. You introduced me to the world of garlic scapes. Who knew? <laughs> right? And uh, thanks for uh, your chat with Katie. I learned so much about apples, and it was definitely interesting hearing about apple ooze. <laughs> well, for more information on these and other horticultural crops grown in Ontario, links to our fruit, vegetable, and specialty crop blogs are provided in the show notes. Special thanks again to our guests, Travis and Katie. And music track for this episode is Aspire by Scott Holm.